It's time to hear what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly at the multiplexes and at the art house. Warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. You'll also hear about new and old films on Blu-ray and on DVD. Plus, you'll hear all the latest Hollywood gossip. I don't care! Okay, maybe not the latter, but it is time for film sociology with WFYI's film guru. Kaiser Shizzy! No, that's Matthew Sosi. It's such a fine line between stupid and clever, yes. Let's see how thin the line is. Here's your host, Matthew Sosi. Hello there, film lovers. Welcome to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocey, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y, at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter, at Matthew Socey. The show's available as a podcast. It's also available on iTunes. And we have a blog, which you can check out at filmsociology.tumblr.com. Just you and me today. Uh, we will dip into the archives for a couple of uh, old interviews from the past. But uh, I want to start with the films that are opening this weekend. Uh, of course, a big one for you music fans. And, and by the way, Big Sky Point Prince, of course. Um, he, of course, starred in three films and directed two of them. Uh, and, of course, his best film is the one he didn't direct. But, you know, Purple Rain is a one of the better musicals to come out in the last uh, 30 years. And, of course, that set the precedent as far as not only uh, music videos in long form, but... Um, his very distinct style. And, of course, uh, because that made gobs of money, he was able to direct his next two films, Under the Cherry Moon and Graffiti Bridge. Both have nice moments, not even close to Purple Rain. But uh, tremendous soundtrack and considered by many one of the, if not the, best soundtrack in cinema. So, uh, Prince, thanks for the music. Uh, we'll get into another dead person we like a little later on because we don't have time for dead people we don't like. But in the music world, there is a uh, finally coming to Indianapolis is the biopic Miles Ahead, written or I say directed by and starring Don Cheadle as Miles Davis. Not your typical biopic from what I've heard. Of course, you can read reviews on the film app as well as Nuvo and Nuvo.net. Uh, but we, uh, I want to dip into the archives with an interview with uh, Brendan Meeks, a uh, jazz musician here in Indianapolis, who has a role in the film playing uh, Ron Carter. Uh, WFYI's own Jill Sheridan got to interview uh, Brendan. So here is their chat discussing the film Miles Ahead. 5.44 on this Thursday afternoon. I'm Jill Dittmeyer. A new film on Miles Davis called Miles Ahead premiered just a few weeks ago at the New York Film Festival. It's created and stars Don Cheadle, the actor, and also a local Indianapolis jazz bassist, Brandon Meeks, who joins us live in studio this afternoon. Welcome, Brandon. Oh, thanks, Gio. <laughs> and many of you uh, probably recognize Brandon. He's part of Native Sun, which is one of our small studio session bands that we featured here on our uh, WFYI.org website as well. But you got to play Ron Carter, um, one of Miles Davis's bassists. Right. That is, that's correct. And how did you get involved with the picture to start with? Uh, I heard of 
an audition that they were doing uh, very early in the planning of the film. And um, there are there some friends I have over in Cincinnati, Ohio, that I uh, routinely play with, and they were telling me about this audition. And uh, I kind of just, just decided to go on a whim. I really had no idea that I would get the part, but I just thought it would be fun to just go and try out. And lo and behold, they gave me a call back. Totally surprised. <laughs> and then, so you spent several days in New York City where they filmed the, the movie because that's where Cheadle really believes that that's where Miles Davis really made it. I mean, really started his whole thing. Well, actually, the, the setting of the movie is New York City, but they filmed it in Cincinnati. Aha. Uh-huh. Because they felt like Cincinnati looked more like New York in the 50s than, <laughs> that's than New York. That's always the way it is, isn't it? Right. And you said, but this, this movie is really kind of a story within a story. That's correct. It's uh, it's it's really historical fiction. Uh, so uh, it, it's definitely not anything like the um, the other bio, biopics that you'll see, like Ray or uh, What's Love Got to Do with It. It really uh, creates a story about Miles Davis um, within the context of his his actual history. But um, but instead of like trying to deal with everything that he did because it's so extensive, I don't think they could really get it into a two hour movie. Uh, so they they kind of created a story that's that, you know it's, it's a really good compelling story uh, about uh, Miles and he's trying to he's he's going through a battle with his record label and um, they they kind of really delve into his personality that way. But um, yeah, it's it's totally different than anything you you would expect from from this kind of movie and um, I, I think it was really smart the way they played that. What what did you learn from it in two ways? One, being part of a film as a musician, mm-hmm. how was it similar or different than when you go and play at a venue? Oh, it is it is an entirely different animal. Um, you know, when we go in, in as musicians, when we go and play at a venue, especially when we're doing jazz, uh, you have the the chance to kind of just be in the moment and uh, just create as you go. Uh, with with uh, being on on set. You know everything is is scripted, and they have to do everything over and over again to get it right. And um, so there's there's a lot of waiting involved, and there's a lot a lot more repetition involved than than just performing because you have to, you know, you have to stand a certain way. They have to make sure you look right in in a certain lighting. It, it's 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 really it's a lot more detailed oriented things that you normally don't even think about just performing, but to create an authentic look on a camera. They have to do so many things behind the behind the camera to get it to look the way that it's supposed to. So it's it was a totally new experience for me. I'm really glad I got to do it. And how do you feel differently about Miles Davis now? Um, uh, I feel like almost kind of like I, I like I've actually had a chance to play with Miles in a way because Don Cheadle he did such an overwhelmingly good job with uh, just bringing that character back to life. That I mean, it, it was so surreal. I really you know, uh, felt at times that, that I was working with Miles Davis and, uh, not to mention that Don Cheadle can actually play trumpet. That's incredible. So, you know, and he's really studied Miles' style. So it, it, you know, it was, it was a surreal experience. It really kind of, um, just caused me to, to dig deeper into Miles' history and even learn more about him. Uh, even though, you know, just playing jazz regularly, I kind of, uh, uh, deal with you Miles' You knew a music. little bit, yeah. Yeah, but... The movie is miles ahead. It should be uh, in wide release next spring. And as we go out here, um, Native Sun's going to be performing in Dayton in a couple of weeks. But we're going to be listening to a little bit of your new music here, Brandon. Give yeah. us a, a quick clip on what this is and 
Sure. Uh, this piece is called Illusion. Uh, it's it's going to be on my upcoming jazz project, and I think the, I'm going to title it Illusion. Uh, it's just something I wrote uh, just for some of the with some of the local musicians here: Rob Dixon, Steve Jones, um, Greg some of Archery, the, the jazz greats. Brandon yeah. <laughs> Meeks. Thanks for stopping by today. Oh, you're welcome. That was Jill Dittmeyer's interview with musician Brendan Meeks, who plays Ron Carter in the new film Miles Ahead, starring and directed by Don Cheadle, which opened in Indianapolis this weekend. Also opening in theaters this weekend, um, Elvis and Nixon, a film, a fictionalized film about the encounter between Elvis Presley, played by Michael Shannon, and by President Richard Nixon, played by Kevin Spacey. That's out there. Uh, also, the new Tom Hanks film, A Hologram for the King, uh, where he plays a businessman out uh, sent over to Saudi Arabia to create a hologram for a, uh, well, the title of the film. But strangely enough, a Tom Hanks film not screened for the press in advance. So take that for what it's worth. For what it's worth. Wow. Hi, Dr. Freud. Um, but also opening a film uh, kind of by default. That I, this was the only one I was able to see, and it was last night. Uh, the Huntsman, Winter's War, a sequel and prequel at the same time to the uh, dour and no fun film of Snow White and the Huntsman. That was the one with Kirsten uh, Stewart as Snow White and Charlize Theron as the Wicked Queen. Uh, Charlize is back. Kirsten is not. Although there's there's a few mentions of Snow White, but you don't see her at all. But it does bring back Kirsten, uh, Kirsten Charlize Theron, I should say. And uh, Chris Helmsworth as the Huntsman. Uh, we see what it was like for him growing up with the Wicked Queen's sister, played by Emily Blunt, who is the Ice Queen. If you want a serious version of Frozen, there are moments of that in this film. Um, we see we see the Huntsman uh, trained at a young at a young age after being taken away from his parents by the Ice Queen who doesn't age, by the way, and uh, falls in love, even though love is banished from the Ice Queen's kingdom. Uh, but he falls in love with a hunter, a, a warrior, a female warrior played by Jessica Chastain. And uh, they are separated and they wind up reuniting, uh, although it's a very tense relationship. And, and that's probably the most interesting part of the film itself. And then they try to retrieve the mirror before it falls into the wrong female wicked hands, whether it is Charlize Theron. Well, it's more Emily Blunt. Anyway, um, this was a film. Now, the last, the first film, The Snowman and the Huntsman, this came out at the same time as uh, the Julia Roberts plays an evil queen film, Mirror, Mirror. And I remember saying that I wish Mirror, Mirror had some of the darkness of Snow White and the Huntsman, and that I wish Snow White and the Huntsman had some of the lighter fare of Mirror, Mirror. This is a more fun film compared to the last one, it, it, only because of the chemistry between uh, Chris Hemsworth and Jessica Chastain. Uh, yes, they, they are pretty, they make out, they kick butt, and that's fun to watch. Um, you also have a little bit of comic relief courtesy of Nick Frost and Rob Brydon. And uh, so, I mean, the action, overall the action scenes are fine. It, 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 sadly enough, it's with two really good actresses like Emily Blunt and Charlize Theron that bring bring the film down as far as tone. Um, very icy performances, ha, pun intended. Um, but they get to vamp it up, and it gets to be kind of a sister crab fest near the end of the film, not really giving away a whole, whole lot. Um, a necessary film? No, but the chemistry between the two action leads are fun, and if that's enough for you, then there is that. 
All right, uh, moving on to what is out on DVD and Blu-ray. Of course, the big title to come out on Blu-ray this week is the Leonardo DiCaprio winning performance in the film The Revenant, which I think a lot of people, myself included, thought was going to win Best Picture. We knew Leo would, would win Best Actor because it's not a performance it's an endurance test watching what DiCaprio's character suffers being left for dead, sun killed and, and literally crawling out of the ground to seek revenge on those who did him wrong, especially Tom Hardy in a Oscar nominated performance. Of course, it's from the director of Birdman. It looks great. Uh, the bigger the screen you have, the better. If you didn't get a chance to see this in theaters, that's a shame. Uh, it is visually stunning. Um, also good use of CG thought it was also going to get, uh, kind of got upset in the visual effects department over ex machina figured, uh, it, that film beat out the Revenant star Wars and Mad Max Fury road when it came to visual effects. Um, of course we're thinking of the scenes involving the bear, which is probably the most uncomfortable thing I had to watch last year on screen, as well as a, a horse and DiCaprio's character jumping off a cliff. Uh, anyway, um, it it could be 30 minutes shorter. It's a well-done revenge film, but it, again, could have been shorter. So uh, a really good film, but not a great film. Uh, also in, on DVD this week and Blu-ray, uh, The Lady in the Van, which uh, stars Maggie Smith as the title character. It's based on a, a writer's life of, of a woman living in an old van in his driveway for over a decade. Um, Got to, full disclosure, my wife and I got to see this on stage in London with Maggie Smith almost, gosh, over 16 years ago. And uh, it, Maggie Smith carries the film and the play itself. Um, yes, she is able to pull off being not really a homeless person, but uh, somebody who lives in her van for long periods of time and is a bit on the unkempt side. Uh, it is one of those kind of quaint small English films where everybody in the neighborhood is interesting and fascinating to watch, most of all Maggie Smith. Uh, also on DVD and Blu-ray this week, uh, the parody film Fifty Shades of Black, as well as the animated film Norm of the North. Moving on. Uh, when it comes to old titles, uh, film movement classics. Uh, of course, they put out the documentary about the residents. I believe that came out officially this week. Also out on uh, Blu-ray this week is the reissue of the 1995, 1996, I should say, Best Foreign Film Winner Antonia's Line, which is uh, set in a Dutch village, which spans over several generations following the matriarch, a farm woman who returns home to visit her ailing mother and her with her daughter, and she winds up staying. Really fine performance, and I hope, I'm, 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 I, hope I don't butcher this, by Willeke von Amarudi. It's written and directed by Marlene Goris, and it's uh, it's at times quaint. Uh, look at several generations in this small farming village and uh, the trials and tribulations that each generation has. It's uh, it's a lot of fun, very touching, and uh, definitely worth renting. Okay, we are going to take a short break, and then uh, we'll talk what's happening at uh, Kobe's alma mater at IU Cinema. We have a dead person we like, and then we will dip into the archives. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org.
is Fred the Hammer Williamson. And you're listening to Film Sociology on WFYI in Naptown. Know what I'm saying? Keep listening. You might learn something. Thank you, Hammer. Welcome back to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD2 The Point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocy, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y, at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter, at Matthew Sosi. All right, uh, heading down to IU for their IU Cinema. Of course, this all depends on what time you're listening to the show. But uh, Saturday night at 7 o'clock at IU Cinema, the Italian film I Don't Know the Men of This City. On Monday the 25th at 3 p.m., a matinee, part of the Monday Matinee Classic Series from 1953, the musical comedy Gentlemen Prefer Blondes with Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe. And then at 7 o'clock is the contemporary post-Yugoslav cinema series from 2010, White, White World. On Tuesday, April 26th, as part of the International Art House series, at 20, uh, 7 o'clock from 2015, of course, based on the John Green novel, Paper Towns. On Thursday, April 28th, from 1982, the drama Ashes and Embers at 7 p.m. And then Friday the 29th, at 6.30 p.m. as a part of the International Art House series, the drama thriller 11 Minutes. At 6.30 p.m. At 9.30 p.m., Ghost in the Shell. And then Saturday the 30th at uh, 3 o'clock, the Media School Advanced Production Workshop Short Film Student Showcase at 3 p.m. And then 11 Minutes at 7 p.m. And as a tribute to Prince... On Monday, May 2nd, a Prince Tribute Marathon, starting with Purple Rain at 5 o'clock. Uh, moving on to Dead People We Like, because we never have time for Dead People We Don't Like. Um, director Guy Hamilton uh, died on April 20th at the age of 93. Best known for directing four James Bond films, Goldfinger from 1964, Diamonds Are Forever from 1971, Live and Let Die from 1973, and The Man with the Golden Gun from 1974. All, well, Diamonds probably the weakest of that lot, and I'm sure there's lots of debate over the uh, the quality of Man with the Golden Gun and Live and Let Die. I happen to like both of those. Some of his other films he directed from 1966, Funeral in Berlin, 1969's Battle of Britain, Force 10 from Navarone in 1978, the Agatha Christie murder mystery The Mirror Cracked in 1980, Evil Under the Sun, the Hercule Poirot Agatha Christie mystery from 1982, and in 1985, the cult hit Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. Okay, we're going to dip into the archives and we're going to dig up my uh, classic chat with Rich Coase, a.k.a. Svengoolie. Uh, of course, you can check out Svengoolie Saturday nights at 10 on MeTV. Murders at the Zoo, I believe, is playing uh, this Saturday night at 10 o'clock. Here is my chat with Rich Coase. You grew up in Chicago, right? Yeah, I've pretty much spent my whole life here in Chicago, my whole life and even my whole career uh, I, I was born in Chicago, and about four years after that, we moved to some suburbs of Chicago. Such as? Uh, around the Morton Grove Niles area. As a kid, what, what horror show host did you watch? I barely got in on one of the originals. I was very young, but I remember seeing at some relatives' houses when we were there late, uh, Marvin Terry Bennett, who hosted Chicago's Shock Theater. Back then, of course, that was the name. Shock was the name of the Universal movie package that was released all over the country. Mm -hmm. And that was where Vampira was first running her stuff out in L.A. And in Chicago, it happened to go to uh, WBKB-TV, where uh, 
Terry Bennett worked, and he became Marvin, the sort of uh, beatnik-type ghoul host. Would that lay the foundation for uh, Jerry G. Bishop? Um, not so much, because I think Jerry was already out of town by then and, and uh, you know, working his way through radio in various cities, radio and TV. How old were you when you started watching Jerry? Um, I was actually just about to enter uh, college. And uh, what were your impressions of watching uh, Jerry work on television? Well, first of all, I'd been a fan of his anyway from his radio work. He'd been on the air doing morning radio and such uh, for many years already before he even hit that. And uh, I was a fan of his, so I you know, was tuning in just because I heard that he was doing some funny shtick in between things as just the voiceover announcer for the horror movies on Friday night. And as it was developing along, you know, I, I enjoyed the character that he was portraying as well and how he was kind of, you know, positioning himself between the various segments of the movie. Did he ever tell you how he developed the character? Uh, he he kind of was taking a tip from the famous Ernie Anderson, Goulardi, uh-huh. who was on opposite him on TV when he was working in Cleveland. But uh, Goulardi was another sort of beatnik-type character, and uh, Jerry decided to kind of update that and make it a sort of hippie ghoul. And so he kind of got, got the nod from that. And then uh, he always said that his, his Bengali accent was kind of Bela Lugosi crossed with Yiddish. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. Well, what was even funnier was he always described my accent as a combination of Bela Lugosi and Lawrence Welk. <laughs> so so Berwin really loves you. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. They're much closer ties than I thought. Well, it's interesting because looking back, because um, I asked the question I had earlier about the foundation for Jerry is uh, because of the hippie persona, and then you mentioned the beatnik persona, um, I, it, it was interesting as a, as a youngster um, with my local horror show host. I, I grew up in Michigan, and ours was uh, Sir Graves Gastly out of Detroit. Mm-hmm is on the surface it was scary looking but then i realized watch looking back he 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 did a, a segment in drag he did a segment german he would uh, paint his face you know paint a face on his chin and uh-huh. be filmed upside down and he showed kids pictures and in uh-huh. your case looking at the early pictures by the way there's somebody here at work who grew up in elkhart and she wanted me to tell you you scared her when she was a little kid <laughs> I've heard that from a few people You're here right. and there. <laughs> but but the fact is you you know, you had, maybe the, the exterior was scary, but you know, you're cracking jokes the entire time and I thought with especially with Jerry's, it's a hippie. He's not a vampire or a ghoul or a zombie. It's you know, it's a hippie that uh, that delivers one liners. Right, exactly. I think part of it is just that the the characters uh, I always said, you know, Pete, there were always been people who said, oh, You should try to act more scary. <laughs> and I've often said, well, the only people who will be scared by that are, you know, kids under the age of five. It's not very effective. If you're trying to act scary and, you know, people are wanting, they're going to go, oh, come on. Whereas uh, making the character kind of comic relief to the horror is what seems to be what works. And for the most part, that's what most of the very successful hosts have done, whether it be tongue in cheek or, you know, just blatant, you know, goofballs like myself. What did you think the first time you saw Count Floyd on SCTV? I I thought he was hilarious. It was funny because I had actually seen Joe Flaherty, who played Count Floyd, live at Second City while he was in his tenure here in Chicago. It was right after I got out of high school, in fact. And uh, I thought he was a very funny guy to begin with. 
But then when I saw that, I thought it was really hilarious. And one of the things that somebody brought up is, you know, uh, he obviously was still doing Second City here in town. He hadn't gone back up to uh, Canada during the time that Jerry was doing his Spengooly stuff here. So it, it seems like, you know, a little bit of that might have been, you know, <laughs> added into his whole uh, Count Floyd persona. The the idea of, you know, running movies that maybe weren't quite, you know, what you would want to run during the time. Because Jerry had a few that were like, wait a minute, this isn't really a horror movie. And, yeah, I thought Count Floyd was very, very funny. Now, I know you started sending jokes to Jerry. Um, what Do you remember the first one he ever used? I I think it was something like, <laughs> you'll love this one. Okay. What do you call a grave in Russia? A what? A communist plot. Oh. <laughs> you know what? I think that's being used on Fox News today, so it's all right. <laughs> well, yes, it's right up their alley there. Yeah, so at first I was just sending him random jokes that I thought he could use. Because he was, you know, actually soliciting them from viewers. And then uh, I, I, you know, let him know a little bit about what I was doing, that I was a broadcasting student. And I actually wrote something that was more specific for him. And he started to kind of request specific things, like, can you do a parody of such and such commercial or uh, something like that? So it, it got into more long-form things than just separate jokes. And how long before he invited you into the studio to work? I would say it was at the most about a year, probably a little less than that. And uh, he had me come in, and he, I ended up going in there, and he'd say, hey, can you do this voice for me off camera? And uh, you know, I did some artwork that he needed for the show. Uh, one of the guys working there then would jokingly refer to me as Jerry's art director. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he had me going with him and, and doing his public appearances with him as various characters and such. And uh, you know, and it became pretty much he was trying to work it out so that I would have a full-time job at Channel 32. But before that happened, his uh, Spengooly show was canceled. So, Well, before the birth of Son, what did your parents hope you would be doing at this time? You know, I don't know that they had any specific uh, direction that they were hoping I would go in. My dad worked in sheet metal and ventilation, and I think he pretty much knew that I wasn't planning to go in that direction. They knew that I, I liked radio, and I think they they kind of thought that I would go in, in that direction in broadcasting, but I don't know that they expected me to go into television as well. Well, how did, uh, how did Son of Spengooly come about? Uh, basically, what happened was there was a time in between <laughs> when I became Son of Spengooly and when Jerry stopped being Spengooly that uh, one of the guys that was a friend of Jerry's at one of the local stations had called him and said, you know, you should just do Spengooly just as a summer fill-in thing for us here. And they talked about it a little bit, and Jerry was like, well, I don't know that I want to dress up in this stuff again. And he <laughs> said, you know what? He said, he said to me, why don't you could be like Son of Spengooly, and then you and I can write and you know produce the thing together and I was like sure that'd be cool and then we talked about it kicked around had some false starts on it and nothing ever really happened with it and then a couple of years down the road when Jerry was going to head out to San Diego to do radio and TV there he said well you know what are you planning on doing now because somebody else I had been working with uh, Dick Orkin do you know him uh, I've Very heard famous, the name uh, famous radio guy who did radio commercials and did a lot of uh, famous uh, modern radio serials like Chicken Man, Oh right, and the Tooth Fairy. Yeah, uh, I've been working with him, and he went off to L.A. 
And now Jerry was leaving, and he said, well, you know, what are you going to do? And I said, well, maybe I'll try to pitch some local station on a on a TV show and see if I can make any inroads there. And he said, I tell you what, if you want to try to do the Southern Spangoolie thing, you have my blessing. And so he kind of handed that off to me, and which was very flattering that he would, you know, take the character that he had created and kind of, you know, turned it over to me more or less. Now, for those who 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 don't go on YouTube, what what was the besides the look? What was the biggest difference between uh, Jerry's uh, character and yours? Uh geez, let's see. Well, Jerry used to play the guitar and sing, and uh, I cannot play the guitar well enough to do that. We thank you for that. <laughs> yes, yeah, anytime. Believe me, you wouldn't want to sit through that. Um, but basically, it's the same type of character, you know, kind of mm-hmm. wisecracking and. Uh, I think Jerry's character, I don't know how to put this better, it was a little more aggressive than mine. And and I think that, you know, Sven is more, uh, the one that I'm doing is more the Jack Benny character who is set upon by the other characters and such around him. Whereas Jerry was more, you know, the wise guy who was, you know, dealing with the others or something. And, yeah, so you're the chicken butt of the jokes. Yes, exactly. Well put. Thank you. Uh, and when did the chi- was the chickens uh, your creation? The 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 fly the flying chickens. Oh no, that that went back to Jerry. Okay. Uh, you know the famous old vaudeville prop of a rubber chicken. Right. Uh, he decided that whenever he would uh, do some bad joke, which was pretty often, <laughs> uh, he would be pelted with those rather than tomatoes or something like that, or bricks, which would not have been pleasant. Or or the giant hook. The giant hook, yes. That would have been much more difficult to have one of the stagehands maneuvering all the time. you got to also spread the fun to people, because if there's one thing people always request is, can I come and throw chickens at you? Gee, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I think I'm at the bottom of the scroll right now. <laughs> <I see. laughs> My first uh, viewing of you, of course, was on uh, was syndicated on Channel 50 in Detroit, and this was in the early 80s. How did the syndication uh, come about? Well, after... Uh, there had been various shows that had run back and forth. They had tried to run The Ghoul from one of uh, the stations that was owned by uh, oh, which which company was it at the time? Kaiser, I guess, Kaiser Broadcasting. And they actually bumped Jerry Spangoolie off so that they could run The Ghoul. And he was not well accepted in Chicago because <laughs> compared to Jerry's character, this was you know an interloper. And he didn't make any friends because we first started out saying, I'm like, yeah, we got rid of that bum Sven Gulli. Ooh, ah. Uh, yeah, nice work. Nice. <laughs> but uh, based on that and the fact that there was a guy in power at our Chicago station who was running all the field stations, they were field stations by then. Right. Uh, he really believed in what I was doing, and he wanted to get it on the other channels. And the funny thing was that we ended up on five different channels in different cities, but a lot of the stations, for some reason, felt that this was being forced on them, so they would not promote it, and uh, you know they would do nothing to help us out. And now, years later, I hear from people who watched me in the various cities, and they were like, oh, yeah, everybody used to watch that. And I had no idea that there was an audience watching me back then. And they say, oh, you went to Chicago after this. And I said, no, actually, I was in (laughs) Chicago the whole time. And we would customize the opens and closes especially so that it would look like, you know, it was something, you know, with jokes playing off that specific city. It was kind of a pain because we'd have to reshoot every open and every close for each city, mm-hmm. and I'd have to rewrite it so that I would get in local jokes. What were the other cities? Uh, we were in San Francisco, Boston, 
Philadelphia, Detroit, and Chicago. I remember because you made a crack on Bill Kennedy, who hosted the uh, the local show, the right, local movie sure. show in the afternoon. And I remember calling Channel 50 and asking about you, and they told me that you were based out of Chicago, and I didn't believe them. No. Because like, <laughs> you mentioned Bill Kennedy. How do, you know, of course you know. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, it was funny because when we were going to do it, I asked each one of the stations, can you just send me a bunch of people, like a weatherman that I can make fun of, uh, you know, various locations in the city, sports teams. Uh, and out of the stations, uh, a couple of them sent really detailed stuff, and the rest were like, yeah, never mind. Okay, I have to ask, how was Detroit's treatment of you? Detroit was uh, fairly weak. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> they they sent, like, just a little bit of information and a Detroit Pistons uh, basketball jersey. <laughs> you still have it? I think I, I believe I gave it to one of my brothers after the show was over. <laughs> how so? How long did this uh, did this last? The the syndication. It varied in the cities from like about uh, six months to a year. Okay. And a lot of that was because they just you know they didn't promote it and they felt like it was not you know, it was not something they wanted to do. It wasn't their production. At one point, we actually went to Philadelphia and shot on their set. They built a whole set just for me to shoot on. Wow. And everybody there, for the most part, was not cooperative. You know, we were doing different bits and stuff. We ran a, a bit that was pretty famous that we did, uh, Mr. Robber's Neighborhood. Right. Uh, where, you know, I'm supposed to look at Fred Rogers as a criminal who breaks into people's homes. That's why he changes his shoes so they can't hear him. Right. And he was talking about how he had a good sharp knife to do something with. And one of the the engineers there goes, oh, that's nice, teaching kids to use knives. Wow, this coming from Philly fans that cheer when Santa Claus get uh, taken off on a stretcher at Eagles games. <laughs> well, what can I tell you? So <laughs> it was an uphill battle in most of those places, and I think that's why it didn't last, in, a, in especially in a couple of those cities. Well, from, from a kid's standpoint, it felt like it was on longer, and I, I mean that as a compliment. And I think also because of the test of time, and there's no inter- internet, and it was you had to be there for that time, unless you had a, v, a VHS or Betamax, you had to be there for that time to see the show. Exactly. Yeah, man, that was it. You know, uh, that's why I hear these people now who see the old clips and they go, oh, wait, I remember when this was on in, in, you know, San Francisco or whatever. Yep. It, it's it's quite a I think San Francisco was the city that we were in the longest, and that was like a full year. By then, all the others had dropped out. Some of the other characters that you had now, was was Durwood from the Jerry era or was and, and you inherited him? Yes, Derwood, the ventriloquist puppet, was from Jerry's era, and uh, to this day, <laughs> I wish he hadn't picked such a high falsetto voice, which he could do much better than I could, because I felt he should still have a similar type voice. You know, I didn't want to change the voice on it, but it's much harder for me to do. Uh, Tombstone was a, a character based on, really, he had a female skull named Zelda, and, uh, again, I, I didn't want to do the exact same thing with that, so uh, we created Tombstone. His name originally was Zalman T. Tombstone, Jr., and it was a playoff on the old Billy Saluga character, Raymond J. Johnson, oh, Jr., that was very popular right. at that time. Yeah, yeah. And Tombstone even had his own little litany, you know, like, like the, you doesn't have to call me Johnson type thing, you know. But you can call me Toomey, or you could call me, and it, it, we did that at a while at the beginning. After all, I was like, I think people would be sick of this. Let's just run it. I always imagined Tombstone, it sounded like if, if Bob Dylan and the Kingfish had a child. 
Yeah, that's pretty close. I okay. <laughs> Tell us about the evolution of Kerwin. Kerwin, yeah. Well, we, we've had a series of different sort of uh, puppet-like assistants doing the mail. The first was our piano player, Doug. Right. And he, he was actually a live person. <laughs> uh, but he often couldn't stay around long enough because he, he is, in actuality, a, a working musician who constantly has different gigs all over the place. So he couldn't wait around until we got, you know, after we did the song to do the music. Uh, we did the music bits, and then uh, we'd have to wait to do the mail after we did several other things, and he often couldn't stay around. So we just said, well, let's try some things. And we had uh, a bat whose voice was like a sort of processed high tone thing. Right. And it was so annoying that one of the bosses in charge here actually said, I want you to get rid of it. And we had to actually do a bit where he was fired because he couldn't stand that voice. <laughs> And then we, for a while, we had a uh, pterodactyl who was a disc jockey who was the assistant, and uh, a dinosaur, I believe. We're very into reptiles at times. I see. And finally, we had a spider for a while, and because he had eight legs, he had eight different voices, and for some reason, that just didn't work at all. But finally, uh, someone from our kids' show, Green Screen Adventures, a young lady named Jessica Hope Carlton, who uh, is very adept at building puppets, kind of as a surprise, uh, cooperating with my uh, director, came up with this. She used like one of those sort of alligator-type things you buy at the zoo. It's like a head on a stick, and you pull the little trigger to make it talk and move the mouth. And she combined that with the body of a rubber chicken and created Kerwin as a prehistoric rubber chicken. Who sounds like Jerry Lewis. Who, yeah, well, when I first looked at him, when they gave him to me, he had these kind of goofy eyes and funny teeth. And for some reason, it struck me that he, he sort of looked like very young Jerry Lewis. So that was why he got the voice. It was kind of like this. Do, do you also not bring up Dean Martin around him? <laughs> no, I constantly bring up <laughs> Dean Martin just to make him angry. <laughs> so speaking of Doug, how do you select the music for the shows? You know, it's, I've often been asked by one of my coworkers, what are you thinking? Because <laughs> I'll say, you know, I want to do something, you know, do, this is like flying to the moon. And he'll say, okay, uh, and he comes up with all these songs with moon in it, and then I'll go, I know, and, and come up with some song that has no word moon in it, and he'll be like, oh, wait, I don't get it, but there's some way that I can tie in certain lyrics that sound exactly like, you know, what, what the originals are that has something that has something to do with the movie. And how did you meet Doug? Doug and I went to high school together, actually. We ah. were in band together in high school. And uh, we became friends and, and just hung around together. And uh, when I started doing TV shows, I figured, you know, it would be great to have him help out. What did you play? I played trombone. <laughs> it's been a long time since I played trombone, so oh, we, please don't ask me to do a solo. Oh no, that's well. We we live in the land of J.J. Johnson. We wouldn't ask you to do that. Well, but, certainly, uh, yeah. But I also I also imagined you as Woody Allen and take the money and run, where you played the cello, but you also had to drag the chair during the parade. <laughs> Let me tell you, being a trombone player in a parade is not fun because you're right at the front of the band, because obviously because of the slide action, they put you there, and also. When you're playing, you don't get to look down and see if there's anything dropped by the horses that were earlier in the parade. <laughs> that was one of the biggest hazards. And I always thought that doing marching band out on a field was one of the most unmusical experiences ever because you think you're doing these formations and stuff, and half the instruments turn away from the stands while they're walking in you know, some pattern, and that means they can't hear that part of the music. So it's oh, like you're not hearing the whole you know, thing like you do in a concert. What's the deal? 
how did Jerry and you come up with all of those sound clips? Well, with Jerry, it was a matter of, you know, he used them in his radio stuff. Mm-hmm. And he had a huge library of, of uh, sound effects and little sound bites and things that they, he passed a lot of on to me. And actually, it was the same thing with me because I wanted to be in radio, and I also did that. I mean, maybe it's not as common anymore, but a lot of disc jockeys used to use little, you know, sure. these little sound bites, uh, little, you know, cart-type reactions and because they were on audio carts that you'd throw into the machine. And I uh, just built up this whole library. And, of course, once I started here, a lot of the guys had suggestions for things or would find something in a show or in a commercial. They, oh, you know, you should really use this. So we, we've got it all. It's all now computerized, obviously, like everything else. It's all digital. And it's in a little, uh, a little machine that we can just call up a number and hit. How many films or how many episodes do you record in one batch? Uh, it varies. We've done as many as nine. Wow. Which is, you know, uh, we're in the studio from noon until nine o'clock every night when we do these. Okay. And that's a long haul. Believe me, being in that makeup for that length of time, not pleasant. But, uh, yeah, we've done as many as nine, and a comfortable range is usually five, I would say. Okay. Because that gives us a, a little, you know, easier time of it. And we're not like under the gun like you know Lucy in the candy factory. <laughs> and when you're selecting the films, is there a pattern? I mean, you know, sci-fi, horror, monster movie, killer movie. Is is there a pattern of any kind? Well, it's not so much a pattern. Uh, my idea usually is to try to vary it somewhat because we do get people who will often complain about the fact that we're doing. Uh, you know, too many mummy movies all at once or too many Frankenstein movies. And, you know, to me, it's like you're complaining about these universal classics. Okay, whatever. <laughs> but I try to, to vary them when I can. And also, there are certain ones that we have only a certain time window for. So we have to make sure that they can air only during, like, we've had movies that we can only run during one month. Jeez. So we have to, you know, make sure it gets in then. So a lot of times it depends on what the contractual window is, the window of time that we can fit the movies in, and you know what what's available to us at what times. Right off the top of your head, what are some of your favorite and least favorite films that you've shown over the years? No, favorite ones, uh, definitely Bride of Frankenstein. I do like uh, House of Frankenstein. I got to run Nightmare on Elm Street, which I really enjoyed, and wow. Halloween, the originals. I uh, really enjoyed those. Ones that I don't like as well, eh, there's quite a few of those. <laughs> <laughs> I think I may have mentioned to you before the uh, Midnight Movie Massacre, which was an absolutely terrible movie. There was one movie that I often cannot remember, A Track of the Vampire, oh. which is so bad and boring. It's a movie where half of it was shot in California and the other half was shot in Yugoslavia, and neither side knew what the other side was doing. <laughs> And it was so bad that when I was at Channel 32, we actually intercut it with with a bunch of other things. And we did one whole segment that was kind of, you know, Svensk around where it had changed. And suddenly the, the woman – it's a scene where this woman is being chased all through the city and into the ocean by the vampire. Mm-hmm. And with my redubbing, it became the fact that she was supposed to show up for swim team practice and didn't want to. And that was the coach running after her. <laughs> and at times, there was like a bald lifeguard who showed up. So naturally, his voice became that of Curly Howard from the Three Stooges. Of course. <laughs> so, yeah, that that was one of the really, really awful ones. 
I would say, does is it the quality of the film that gets it a a Spence around treatment, or have you? I, I think I remember once you did it with even with Night of the Living Dead. We we did separate scenes from that. A lot of times I'll lift scenes and it, so it doesn't interflow. I mean, interrupt the flow of the movie or you know ruin people's enjoyment of the actual movie itself. If it's a really bad movie, a lot of times the only way to save it is to do something like add some sound effects to it along the way. Um, now, I know there was one of the writers from Mystery Science Theater 3000 grew up in Chicago. Have you heard – have you made contact with any of those guys before? No, I've never been in contact with them. I've heard from other people that you know they've, they've done little shout-outs to Sven in some of their shows that um, one guy said he went to some convention and dressed as me and ran into one of them, and the guy immediately said, hey, your son is Sven Gooley. <laughs> okay. They, they know about it, and I remember reading an article in the Chicago Tribune where they were talking to to a couple of the guys, and they said, you know, we weren't the type of guys who were trying to, you know, pick up uh, cousin Brucey on the radio from New York or whatever like that. We were trying to watch people like Ray Rayner, who did a morning kids show here in Chicago, and Sven Gulli. So they were aware of of both, and uh, they they obviously saw both Jerry Svengooley and my son of Svengooley. Have you ever talked to any of the filmmakers or actors whose movies you've uh, you've aired? Very rarely. Uh, you know, a lot of them right now. Of well, course, a lot of the Universal folks. A lot of them not are around. <laughs> uh, although I did hear, uh, I've got a couple guys who do a great website called Terror from Beyond the Daves. And it's, they have a blog about different horror hosts and horror-oriented things. And they both are guys who grew up watching me and are big fans. And now, especially with our national exposure, when they go to conventions, they, they get a lot of feedback about the show from people. They ran into Julie Adams, who was the beautiful woman in the white bathing suit in Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yes. And she was just thrilled to hear that you know we show her our, her movie on our program. The same thing with uh, Tippy Hedren from The Birds. Sure, she we ran at, uh, The Birds here in Chicago and won the time slot, which was just you know incredible. For you know it's like Sven Gulli winning the time slot. Good grief! <laughs> uh, but she was another one who was just thrilled to hear that we were running that show on free broadcast TV since it hasn't appeared on that very much, and it, it's just really great to you know get even these secondhand things. I did meet uh, Robert England, Freddy Krueger. And it turns out he's a big fan of my show. He's been watching it out in California now, and he's had a lot of very complimentary things to say about it, which is really nice. Lance Henriksen mm-hmm. met up with him. He's a very nice guy. It was a lot of fun and seemed to enjoy the show. Um, we, we ran him in Pumpkinhead uh, a couple yes. of times. Mm-hmm. And I think Piranha too as well. So. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> How often are you allowed in Berwyn? I'm allowed there any darn time I want to be there. <laughs> do you have the key to the you. city yet? They don't even need a key. I've got like a key card. <laughs> just lets me in and out. It's not a problem. Actually, yeah, it's funny because just about, I'd say, 95% of the people in Berwyn love that we do the stuff that we do about that city. And they know it's just jokes. Uh, for a while, they had a mayor who was, who was you know, Oh, you go, oh, we we don't want to be the butt of Sven Gulli's jokes, and yet any time I'd show up there, he always made sure he was there to get a picture of shaking my hand. Politician. Yes, and uh, and and occasionally it's like the the people who are like, oh, you know, you shouldn't make fun of our town. But uh, the thing is, every time I've done a radio 
interview or TV interview, and people have asked about Berwyn. I've always, you know, stated what I just told you and the fact that it's a really nice suburb. The people are very nice there. They're all hardworking people, and now they're trying to be, you know, a little more upscale, and they're adding more arts and, and things, and, uh, you know, God bless them. It's, it's a nice place, and it also has my favorite horror collectibles store, a place called Horror Bolts, which has a real nice stock of all sorts of things. How did you pick Berwyn out of all the, all the towns for the, for the bit? That was Jerry's doing. Uh, back when he was trying to figure it out, um, he had always uh, had, uh, when he was in Cleveland, uh, Goulardi, Ernie Anderson, made fun of a server called Parma. And when he came here, he had that in mind. And he also, at that time, Rona Martin's Laugh-In was kind of winding down, uh-huh. and they were making fun of beautiful downtown Burbank, as was Johnny Carson. And he thought, well, we, we need to do something like that. We can make small-town jokes about that. It would be funny. And he was trying to decide on something, and he ended up having a sponsor that was from the Berwyn area. And when he went there, it, it seemed like the one street, Ogden Avenue, was all – <laughs> savings and loans and used car lots. And then he found out that they had the yearly parade in honor of mushrooms, the Hobie Parade. <laughs> Hobie is Czech for a mushroom. Yeah. And he decided this would be a good place to, to use as our uh, our city that we uh, kind of poke fun at. Well, it has a it has a flow to it compared to say Downers Grove, Westmont, or Wheaton. Yeah, you can't <laughs> go like Cicero. It doesn't flow as well as Berwyn. <laughs> Is 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 there a film that you've always wanted to show and had not ha- have not had a chance to do yet? Yes, Fiend Without a Face. Do you know that movie? Um, the French film, right? No. Oh no, no, no. I'm, thinking, I'm thinking of Eyes Without a Face. I'm sorry. No, no. This, sorry. Is, this is like a, a cheapo. I think it's an American international one. Okay. Where there's something invisible that is killing people. And they're not sure what it is. And at some point, they find a way to make them visible. And it turns out there are these brains with spinal columns that kind of like inch along. They were done with stop-motion animation. And when they are fighting with them, when you shoot one, it makes a noise like a whoopee cushion kind of and, and lets loose the sort of raspberry jelly type stuff. Is this the way the flying brains with the eyes? Or uh, I think it's something else. It, it, you may be confusing it with... Uh, the brain from Planet Eros. Ah, okay, all right. <laughs> but these—you would remember these right away because they're okay. they're smaller brains, about the size of a human brain, but they had this sort of spinal column and they inch along like an inchworm using that, and they can also like leap through the air. Well, this is my YouTube project for the day. That's good. All right, yes, <laughs> you'll enjoy it. Believe me. Now, now, how long have you been with the U? I have been here since 1995. At WCIU, and then as we've added more stations, uh, my shows have gone on to the various stations, and including now our network, MeTV. How did the MeTV deal come about? Because of the great success we had here in town, when the U first went on, it was kind of a hybrid of of what MeTV is and uh, also a little more modern-type programming that we would manage to get. And as we went along, my boss, Neil Sabin, who was like a genius, <laughs> had uh, <laughs> noticed that uh, like Nick at Night and TV Land were changing dramatically, and they weren't what they originally were supposed to be, you know, with this classic TV stuff. And he had this idea of making me t- the Me TV station, which we did first locally here, and he felt that there was viability to that across the country since, you know, people weren't really getting that presented the way that we presented, and uh, he managed to start, you know, 
start the wheels in motion, and now we're in almost 80% of the country. And cool. it, it's especially amazing that it happened in about a year's time to have that kind of progress. really says a lot for what Neil could do and, and what the MeTV na- uh, National Network can do. I'd say you could call those other syndicated cities from the 80s and blow raspberries at them, but they're probably not there anymore or, or probably dead. <laughs> oh, you never know. Yeah, most of the people involved have probably moved on and uh, are not quite around anymore or, yeah, have been deposed. Knowing the nature of television, they probably lost their jobs. And... They're mad as hell and they're not going to take it anymore. Yes, and I'll shed a tear for them like that Indian standing <laughs> alongside the highway. For me, TV is it strictly Universal Films? Right now it is, yeah. Uh, we have a, a really nice contract with Universal, and we're actually working on an extension of that for the future that would add in even more films for us. And we're hoping that that'll happen. And this is really, you know, the first broadcast TV national uh, exposure for these universal horror films since many, many years ago. Which I think is a a really cool thing. I know uh, recently there's been films like The Mole People, which I haven't seen in a long, long time. And I know... uh, uh, the uh, the horror film with uh, Dirk Benedict and and uh, Strother Martin. I mean, those are ones I can't even think of the last yeah, time you're I talking saw them. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's cool that you 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 look for films that have not seen the light of day in a long time. Yeah, and I think it, it's a really an education for a lot of people because there is a generation that hasn't seen these. We, when we were kids, it seemed like they ran them much more on television, and now if they run at all, they've run on cable as opposed to on, you know, actual broadcast TV. So the fact that we're kind of, you know, reintroducing these to a lot of people who maybe never saw them before is, is really great. It's nice to continue the universal legacy. And and also, from a, you talk about from an educational standpoint, I love when you do a segment based on who these actors appeared in, you know, what other films they've appeared in, what the director has worked on. You know, when, when my daughter saw that Bella Lugosi played the Frankenstein monster, that, that blew her lid a little bit in a good way. Uh, sure, yeah. There are things that people really don't expect uh, or, you know, they don't know about connections to various things. Like the people who ended up playing some other part on, on a TV series years later that they had no idea that that ever happened. So it's very cool to be able to, you know, make these connections for people or just remind people, you know, this guy also did this. And at times it's it's really a tribute to the versatility of the actors, and, and it's great to show that they had a wide enough range to do so many things. You're walking IMDb, sir. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm sitting right now. <laughs> and I know also um... – You've you've also been showing comedy shows, and and don't listen to the internet. There's nothing wrong with that. With showing, you know, I know you've done the Three Stooges marathon and Abbott and Costello, and yeah, you know, well, most of the Abbott and Costello stuff we've shown still has a horror element to it. It's not, you know, we're not just showing, you know, hit the ice or something like that. Right. Abbott and Costello meet the mummy or or you know Frankenstein or whoever. Uh, we've thrown in a few things here and there. Yeah, well, you know, Ghost and Mr. Chicken. There's still like a horror sure. scare element to that. If anything, you know, we've run some Marx Brothers movies, and uh, that's mainly because I'm a big fan of the Marx Brothers. They were a big influence on me. And uh, you know, I, again, I love when people are like, oh, this is wrong. You should be showing only scary things. And uh. it's like, have you noticed that a great portion of my part of the show is comedy? 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. And we, we also like the, you know, you, you air it the same reason why dogs lick their elbows. Because you can. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> and also, Thanks for saying elbows. Well, yes. Thank you for <laughs> saying elbows, too. Um, and also, it's it's really cool that the, the show on MeTV, you've you kind of become an ambassador for local horror show hosts. It's a lost art. I mean, we have we have Sammy Terry popping up every every few months here in Indianapolis, but it, it's cool for you to give shout outs to cities that have had hosts, and you show other hosts, and even show old photos of Jerry and you. Um, it, it's it's a lost art, I think, for local television. Well, with the the way that uh, television has been going now in the TV economy, most local show, uh, stations do not do entertainment type shows. They're mainly, you know, if they have budgets. They're going to do news and sports and public affairs and an occasional magazine show, but you know, they're not going to do something that's strictly entertainment because, uh, according to them, it it doesn't generate enough money to justify, you know, the studio time and editing time and everything like that. And when we first started here uh, locally, the people in charge of the station said, you know, well, maybe we're not going to make money on this, but it's an important part of TV and something that viewers really get an attachment to and make a connection with, and that's important to us. And now, of course, you know we're we're doing very well, and it's it's nice to see that people, you know, every every email I get from out of town, for the most part, will mention we haven't had anything in town like this since you know in the seventies with you know Doctor Bad Teeth or something like that. So <laughs> there's always everybody's got a horror host they watch sometime in their life. It seems. Do you do you do shows strictly for Me TV, and then you do shows strictly for the U? We, yeah, we have um, some shows that, that run basically – well, the ones that run on MeTV right now also run on the U. It's like a week delay basis. But then on the U2, we run some of the older ones that we have that we still have rights to or that are public domain. And I also do a Three Stooges show, Palooza, that runs on Saturday nights on our Me Too channel. So I was going to say, how often do you get to appear on TV as Rich? Uh, every week. Okay. <laughs> Basically, yeah. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, I'm in the makeup, I'm out of the makeup, in the makeup, out of the makeup. Well, you, you're, you know, it, it keeps you young, maybe. Well, I don't know about that. Or but... young at heart. Okay, I'll go with that. <laughs> so so what's next for uh, for Spangoolie? Uh Right now, I, it seems like we're just continuing to go to more and more of the uh, places in America. More and more uh, stations are picking up. The MeTV network and getting better distribution of it, and a lot of them we started out just over the air, and now it's going to cable as well in a lot of the cities and uh, wider distribution in in a lot of the cities. There's a lot of rumors about uh, out on the West Coast that uh, we're going to have more visibility out there. So uh, I think it's just a matter of the Sven show catching on in these various places, and then I think the next step after that is possibly starting to make public appearances all over the country, which should be fun. Well, you know, you have a place to crash in Indianapolis, that's for sure. Well, thanks, I appreciate that. Silent Green is people! Zardoz has spoken. Go see a good movie. You deserve it. Don't forget, Murders in the Zoo will be on Svengooli Saturday night at 10 o'clock on MeTV. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. Good afternoon, Fort Myers. Good afternoon, California. Good afternoon, Michigan.